This episode of the Get Fast podcast is brought to you by Tribello Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. You are joined as always by your hosts, former Australian Ironman Jared Donnelly, and I am Jordan Donnelly. In this episode, we are talking about the winning edge, the winner's edge, and really specifically, how to get a winning edge over your competitors. Now, this episode is about, given all other factors would be similar, if you already have a well-established training program, if you have the basic fundamentals down pat, which include a well-formed training program with with proper structure, proper training, proper periodization, uh, training that is going to generally be really effective for you with all those things being equal how do you find an edge over your competitors and there are very specific things that you can do which will actually give you a competitive advantage over other races so we're going to go through a lot of them and I know this is the stuff that you love that you're always looking for is you've probably had a pretty good structured training program for 30 years so you're always looking for the the one percenters the little things that can uh, push you that little bit further and get you that little bit better I, I- I totally agree. And if you put two athletes side by side who are doing the same program and one is getting more out of himself than the other, I would straight away look at what is he doing that I'm not doing because we're doing the same program. But it's those those little extra little bits that create that winning edge, that winning culture. And they could be so insignificant, but they are formulating the, the whole picture and we always say in a lot of our sentences what should I someone asked me what should I do differently and I say well that depends and we say that a lot that depends and this is another example of you know having a really well founded training program with structure and you understand your data and you're doing everything right you're not doing anything wrong but why aren't you getting the same extras out of the program that Rider B might be doing that's doing the same program as you are. Now, on this topic, there are probably hundreds of little things you could do. So we're not going to go into discuss every single one because there are lots of ways to find a competitive advantage. But we're going to discuss some key ones that you notice that you specifically think people could improve straight away that would help them get that winning edge. So take us through the first one. And the first one we want to talk about was the specificity of cadence on the bike and how it is a thing that a lot of people don't pay enough attention to even on my last weekend's training sessions I found myself drifting away from one of my key goals in most training sessions is what is my cadence and why am I so worried about that how does it impact on on anything I'm doing well in a really good structured program you would have sessions that have low cadence medium cadence and high cadence and the reason we use cadence uh, in variation is to be trying to manipulate different aspects of the actual session. Low cadence, and I'm talking revolutions per minute, under 75, that would be definitely t- to build strength. So that's a specific cadence session where you're trying to ride slow pedaling action and engage the complete three major muscle groups of the quads, hamstrings and glutes. So cadence is specifically used for a a purpose. 80 to 90, we use that a bit. And we use that in warm-up where we don't want to do 
strength if it's at 60 in our warm-up, but we don't want to spin high um, early on in the in the session. We want to gradually build our cadence from 80 to 90 to 95 to 100. So the start of the session would be specifically using cadence to, to warm ourselves up. A lot of the time we use cadence at 95 to 100 to 105. We're teaching pedaling technique, but we're also trying to stimulate our cardio. The faster the cadence, the more heart and lung you know, gasping for air you feel like you need. So that's a classic example of how cadence can change the outcome of the session. What do you think is the biggest winning edge with cadence? So if you're not practiced at riding a high cadence, um, the, this, is the, this is the number one thing that happens to people when they get under pressure in a race situation. The, I call it the go-to cadence. When, when all of your, your energy sources are down and you're getting tired, it's getting towards the end of the race, you can't push the same 95 or 90 RPM that you could before comfortably. Now your heart rate's spiking because the length of time of the race is, as we know, heart rate as you get tighter for the same output increases. And obviously if you ride harder towards the end of the race, your heart rate's going to go higher. So the obvious thing, like we spoke about two minutes ago, the higher the cadence, the higher the heart rate. So the go-to cadence when you feel like your heart rate's getting out of control and why are we worried about that anyway? But once we hit a red zone in heart rate, doesn't matter how fit you are, doesn't matter whether you're Peter Sagan, you can't push the same power once you go into the red zone for too long. So the go-to cadence is to drop the cadence down to stop your heart rate from spiking. So that's a classic example of manipulating cadence to get a better outcome. So we, we don't want to... Once we get into a lower cadence at the end of a race when we're struggling, if there's a sudden... Uh, need to ride faster for some period or there's a hill if you're grinding away in the low cadence you have less ability to change the pace of what you're doing so having less control over your cadence when you go to the go-to cadence which is too low it limits you for everything it solves the problem of keeping your heart rate down but it actually then gets your legs to a fatigue state where you could possibly be looking at cramp as the next thing so we want to be fit enough to hold the cadence that we want to hold throughout the whole race. So that is one of the, the, one, the winning edge things, one key thing that I really search for in my program, in my training sessions. I know that I've got the wattage to ride to, the, the length of time, the gradient that I'm choosing, the course that I'm choosing, all those things are important. But actually identifying during the event that I am holding the cadence during the session that I'm holding the cadence so that when it comes race day, it's something that's natural to me. And I, I want that to be my go-to cadence, not like 95% of the other athletes or cyclists or triathletes. Their go-to cadence is 70 RPM. And for a triathlete, that's suicide for your run. So we, we want to use cadence in many different ways, but that is one where we don't want, as a triathlete, to be riding a strength session in a race and then try and get off and run. Because you know that feeling if you are doing low cadence at 60 to 70 RPM, it really feels like it's grinding and you do feel like you've done a big squat session or something and try running after that. It is, and we use that strength session with low cadence. Specifically, you know, I'm a big advocate of doing strength training, not in the gym, but on the bike. 
And low cadence is perfect for that because you're actually practicing the pedaling action at a low cadence, 360 degree pedaling action at a 60 to 75 RPM. And you get off after that session. It may not have been cardiovascularly hard, but you try and walk up and down stairs and you're going, whoa, my legs. You feel like you've been in the weight room. If you're in a race situation, you've been riding too low a cadence, you get off the bike and you're meant to be able to run nice and fresh because in our program, we practice bridge sessions mm. a lot, mm. riding than running. Getting off after doing a weight training session and trying to run is actually going to be detrimental to your run and could sabotage your whole triathlon. It's interesting even just looking at Tour de France examples and you see the guys climbing up the mountain and Chris Froome's got an extremely high cadence compared to most of the guys and most of them have a pretty average what would you say you go to you don't see many grinders you know back yep. 20 years ago you saw Jan Ulrich who had the probably the 60 yes. RPM up the yeah. hill but it's interesting seeing the variation in even the price over the decades the yeah. cadence has been one of the things that's been significantly changed and a lot of the gearing and that caused the problem when we had you know back in the day when I had a seven speed bike and an eight speed then a nine then a ten and an eleven so the choice of gears was really small and we only had a straight block which on the rear was you know, a 13 through to 18. And I remember riding around the circuits around here in the Dandenong Ranges in uh, in Melbourne where I was struggling to get up some of the hills because my front chain ring was 54 and my uh, um, lower chain ring at the front was 44. So I had a 54-44 and a 13-18. So my lowest gear was 44-18. And I couldn't get up a lot of the hills around mm. here without zigzagging. Mm. And now I've got a choice of uh, 36, 28, mm. which is like a mountain bike gear in those days. So yeah. so the, to practice cadence in the olden days, you couldn't. You just had to be strong to push the gear. Well, now we've got bikes that allow us to ride a better cadence. And to come and expect to do it in a race situation like you just talked about with the mountain stages in the, in the pro races, they're trying to save their legs not only for that particular stage but for the next – 20 days or 15 days similar to what a runner is experiencing in a triathlon that you know the, the more times you damage the muscles in your legs you're going to struggle the next day so you want to learn in training to actually ride really good cadence when it counts and if you haven't practiced it it's not going to happen naturally in a race so just being able to pay attention to cadence is one thing you'd say that a lot of athletes don't do enough. And like you said, you can even find yourself drifting off with and not paying enough attention to. But then actually how you uh, execute the cadence, which is your pedaling action, is the next thing in the winning winning edge kind of formula that you look at is something that people really need to focus on. And there's a lot in the actual pedaling action itself um, that you need to be paying attention to. And that includes what, what I want to ask you now is pressure on the pedals, um, you know, not freewheeling, you know, getting yourself over undulations with the same pressure on the pedals. So talk to me about that. Yeah, and another point that we should include in that is course selection. Mm. So in your training, if if you're trying to get your body to adapt to holding a certain cadence all day, if that's what you're trying to achieve, I want to today I want to hold 95 RPM for the entire one hour, two hours, three hours. If you're on a course that continu- continually has stops, stop lights, traffic lights, interruptions, you're losing that fitness gain that you're getting if you're on a course that has no stops out in the country. And and that's something that is really crucial to the, the, the winning edge topic of picking the right course um, to train at so that when it comes race day, you've had experience at holding 
pressure on the pedals for three hours. What does pressure on the pedals mm. mean? Well, pressure on the pedals is when you're constantly exerting a force against the pedals so that at no stage are you softening up. And how? Do, what do I mean by that? Soft pedaling, some people call it crystal cranks, <laughs> which if you pushed it too hard, it would break. Um, and we really want to have pressure on the pedals at an even rate, and that's very hard to do without a power meter. So if you look down and you've got it on three-second power, you would see fluctuations. Say we're trying to hold 200 watts. You could see 210 on one pedal stroke, 195 on the next, 204 on the next. And so it jumps all over the place. And, and that pressure on the pedals, learning how to hold 200 watts as close as possible for extended periods of, of time, really shows you've got the, the pedaling technique right to allow you to do the right cadence. So the pressure on the pedals has that purpose, to be able to understand how to exert the pressure throughout the full pedal rotation evenly. For a lot of people, they wouldn't have even considered that um, to be abnormal, to be going 210 to 190. You think, oh, that's just, you know, you can't really pedal that even. But I have looked at your pedal power and you have an incredible ability to be at 198, if you're trying to hold 200, 198, 202. 199, 201, you, you're barely outside of a four-watt range, which shows how even you're pedaling consistently for long periods. And not showing off, but a lot of people who ride with me notice that when we're in a training session where we're actually not trying to ride hard, but we're trying to hold steady power. And a great example is uh, if you're in a car and you had cruise control and the car beside you was a car that hadn't got cruise control it was a 20 30 year old car you would find that the car would be surging next to you then dropping back then surging and he would be looking across to you saying what are you doing mate you're changing changing speed in the car whereas you're not doing anything you're just holding the same steady speed in the car 100 k's an hour he might be going 105 k's 95 k's without even realizing and of course then add a hill in and as soon as you have a have a hill the cruise control on the car just keeps the same whereas a person in in a non-cruise control will push the pedals harder and all of a sudden he's doing 105 k's an hour on the downhill the natural thing is to take the pe- put pre- pressure off the the accelerator so the changes in pace you know why are we worried about that well we, we want to know that we can actually execute a really good pedaling p- uh, power exertion throughout the whole day so that we're not fatiguing our legs we're not having spikes in our legs Every time you push, say we're trying to hold 200 watts for a period of time as a triathlete, it's really important that you're trying to hold the range for the whole 180K or 90K or 40K, whatever race you're in. Putting spikes in is just like doing little efforts and you don't want to spike your heart rate or cause the muscle to fatigue any quicker than it has because you've got a certain amount of petrol in any day's race and you want to measure that effort so that you don't run out of petrol by the end of that race. So the cadence is unbelievably important um, when you're considering that. And some of the things I do is people say to me, oh, that recovery ride, I know the purpose of it, but it's so boring. Well, I totally concentrate on my cadence in the recovery ride. Can I hold 105 RPM in my recovery ride against 100 watts? And that's my goal, just holding that and, and having to concentrate on pulling up and pushing down evenly so that there's no jumping around. And, you know, the next phase is putting yourself on a, a set of rollers, um, which is another another point we will talk about. 
There's so much in this because um, even what you're just talking about on a recovery ride, if you have a power meter that measures left and right pedal power, then you go finish your ride and go, well, what, what was it? Was it 51, 49%, 51% power on my right leg, 49% my left, was it 52, 48? Was it massive? And it was a massive gap being 54% to 46%, which is a huge difference between your right and left leg. And there's so much you can look at and you can also look at your average power um, if you, you know, know how to read training peaks properly looking at your average power, if it's got these massive spikes up and down, it means you're not riding very evenly in a recovery ride where it's supposed to be really easy. That should be a time when you can really concentrate and ride as evenly as possible because you're not under any duress. And most most uh, athletes, cyclists that we're talking about here, triathletes or cyclists, um, if you look at any session, what you just spoke about, you know, it's like, it's like uh, you know, getting your heart rate monitored. You know, you see spikes when each beat comes up and the, the rest of it, it should be dead straight. Mm because that's the lull. Well, we're trying to create a power profile, and that's one of my goals. So when I get off the bike and have a look, I don't have all these little squiggles. I have almost a straight line, and it almost looks like erg mode is on. Mm. And what do we mean by erg mode? Well, erg mode is when the bike is holding you at the one power, and you have no say in it. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to simulate. People say, why don't you just use erg mode? Well, there's lots of reasons why we don't use erg mode, yeah. which is another whole story. Yeah. And erg mode is only on a smart trainer. If you have a smart trainer, then yeah. um, it, it holds you at a power. The advantages of that is that it holds you at a power, so you're forced to ride at it. But the big disadvantage is you're not learning how to do it yourself. You've, no. The bike's dictating You don't have that you. function in the race yeah. to ride at erg mode. Yeah. So if you can learn to do that in a race, that's yeah. actually perfect. You can't just flick a machine on and it holds That's right. You. But I mean, you need to learn to do that yourself. Yeah. Yeah, unless you're Cancellara and you've got a motor in there. (laughs) (laughs) No, we don't know if he had one. It's still a conspiracy on that. Um, But that's why we started with this point because cadence and pedaling technique and pressure on the pedals, they're all concepts you might have heard before, especially cadence, and people would just think, and athletes would think, oh, I know how to write a certain cadence. I know know what cadence is. But there's there's a whole new world when you look into it and you think about, okay, well, am I being as effective as possible with with my cadence? And when you ask the question, you know, how how good is my pedaling technique? How good am I at holding pressure on the pedals? How good am I at holding even power? Because for you, if you're doing a two-hour ride and you have an incredible ability to hold even power, you're not wasting energy up and down, jumping around. Think about how much more efficient you are over two hours compared to someone who's having to jump up and down because they're not riding properly. They're just wasting so much energy not riding, not holding even power. Spot on. They're gradually increasing the fatigue level whereas you're you're just releasing it at an even rate and people who grab grab an extra 10 15 watts here and there that adds up 50 times Mm. and it will hurt you at the end of the race and and in whether you're doing a criterium or a road race or a time trial in triathlon at you know it, it counts across the whole from start to finish you know you're not you're not measured by the first five minutes or the first half hour. You're measured by the whole event. And if you can get to the end in the best possible shape, as a triathlete, you want to get off and run really well and not hurt yourself but run, but ride as close to your goal as possible but not hurt yourself in the process. Mm. If you're in a criterium or a road race and you want to get to the finish to sprint or break away and hold power and you've wasted too many matches earlier on, you're not going to be able to do that either. So, so it's really important that, you know, we do consider this is one of those winning edge things. Mm. And, you know, we talked about pressure on the pedals. We talked about no freewheeling. What does that mean? I'm 
so keen on not hearing that sound of people not pedaling. You know what, when your bike, mm. when people stop pedaling, it's that mm. sound. Mm. That's my pet hate. Mm. I cannot stand that sound. That means that someone's not pedaling. So in a race situation, you might, some might say to you, well, you're trying to conserve, aren't you? And I think that's great in a race. Mm. That's the time when I'm happy to hear that sound. Yeah. It means that you know, you're saving energy for when it counts. But in a training session, I don't want to see you saving energy unless you're in the recovery phase. of. But even then, you want to keep turning the pedals over because blood flow is really important. And if you're holding your pedals stiff in, in uh, one static motion, there's no blood flow going there. I mean, you might have been working really hard and all of a sudden – you get this blood pooling, which is the opposite to what you want. You want blood flow so oxygen goes to the re- working the repairing muscles. And, and to sit there stationary, you might be on a descent that goes for 15 minutes. You need to just roll the pedals over so the blood is flowing. So when you get to the bottom of the descent, you can actually ride normally again and not feel like, oh, what's wrong with my legs? Because I've been stationary for 10 minutes. Plus you lose the effect of the pressure on the pedals. So those two things go together. No freewheeling and pressure on the pedals in the one session. I just don't want to see periods where people's cadence is zero. This is what we talk about, the competitive competitive advantage, because you look at someone who's completing a training program and completing every bike session, and yes, you might be completing the basic fundamentals, but then person B is doing the same training as you, but focusing on their cadence and their pressure on the pedals for every part of it, including the recovery, because they're trying to get the maximum out of their session. How much more are they getting out of their training sessions than person A? Oh, unbelievably accurate what you just said then. And, you know, I just talked about the example on the weekend and I was trying to hold a certain wattage and, you know, just finding a little bit uncomfortable. And then I stopped concentrating on my pedaling action and all of a sudden I went, oh, I'm not pulling up on the pedals here. Instantly I did that. The next 10 seconds, my power went 10 watts higher just by pedaling using all three muscle groups again rather than just pushing down because I was drifting. My mind was drifting away from what I, I was thinking about how tired I was getting instead of concentrating on what is my cadence and what is my power. And I know that if I use my glutes and hamstrings to contribute to the quads on the down push, glutes and hamstrings on the up pull, then I'm going to get an even power response and instantly my power jumped. Even that's just a little a little technique thing that you can easily not think about is the pedal action is 360 degrees. It's push and pull. It's not just push. And we can be so quad dominant and we just be pushing and hardly ever pulling up. And that, that 360 degree rotation is really important to think about. Yeah, it is one of the keys in being able to hold steady, even power like we've been talking about. Uh, pressure on the pedals with a good pull up pull stroke as well as a down push stroke will enable you to actually get really even power. And the best way to do that, and you know, I've gone and purchased a set of rollers specifically for that. Um, when I first started on the rollers a long time ago, I nearly bounced myself off because my pedaling action was so all over the shop. And it, it causes you to... to to sit still and pedal smoothly. And if you, the minute you start to bounce, then the bike will jump off the rollers and you're on the ground. So, so a set of rollers, you know, the winning edge, you know, do some of your sessions on rollers. And you'll know straight away if you are an uneven, an uneven pedaler, even without having a right and left power meter, because your right will push you off the rollers, won't they? That's right. And, and a lot of riders, 
that I look around when I'm, especially in the hills, when they're really struggling, their upper body from the hips will start to, it's like they've got a song in their head and they're, they're pushing up and down to the beat of the song. Well, we want to have from your hips up perfectly still and the engine room is below your hips where the legs are just riding these magnificent 360-degree pedaling action. No matter how low the gear is, if you're doing strength efforts, it should be the same. Mm. None of this pushing down with your head. The head doesn't contribute or your torso doesn't contribute. It means you're just pushing mm. if you're doing that. Whereas if you're, at, if you're concentrating on pulling up, there's no way your upper body will be doing the bob, bobbing motion that we're talking about. And practicing that is is something that you can do the same session, get the same outcome, but you actually haven't um, engaged two of the muscle groups. So, they, so therefore, you're not developing that. Um, the person who can develop that in training is going to be, in six months' time, a better pedaler than the person who does the same training program without developing those muscle groups. And I know that this is a pet hate of yours, especially that freewheeling sound. And I actually laughed myself if I ever um, see a bunch cycle past and actually I could just hear a majority of the bunch with that sound. And, and you just think, no, hardly anyone's pedaling there. They're just rolling. You know, you're not actually moving your body. It feels like you're exercising because you're on the bike, but you're not actually, you're not actually pedaling. You might as well be in the car with your window down. Yeah, exactly. Because you're getting the wind in your face, but you're not actually contributing. The only people are getting the value out of that are the two people on the front if you're in twos. And... You know, that, that type of session where, you know, we encourage group ride once a week in our program. But if you're in the middle of that bunch and you're not getting the power output that's required, then you're pretty much wasting your time. It's socially, it's great. But for value to improve, and we're talking about the winning edge here, then there's no winning. It's a losing edge mm. being in that group. So you need to actually make sure that you... Get some time on the front um, so your nose is in the wind. And, you know, I've done many times where if the, if the bunch has someone on the front who specifically wants to be on the front, I'll drop 50 metres off the back of the bunch and be in the wind without anybody noticing. And I've done that plenty of times in my, my years of training where I'm not getting the outcome I want. I still want to be with the group, but I can be 100 metres behind them. Um, it comes undone a bit when if I get stopped at a traffic light and they don't, then I'm actually now a kilometre behind yeah. them. <laughs> so, so it can, you know, you've got to take the good with the bad there. But, but you know the point I'm making is um, there are times when it's okay on a recovery day to be sitting in there spinning away. That's a great day to, to, be, to be just – but you still wouldn't be freewheeling. Mm-hmm. You would be concentrating on pedalling. Mm-hmm. Um, the pedalling in a recovery day is not reliant on the wattage – it is totally about the pedaling. This was really made evident to me when we were cycling in Belgium. In Belgium, majority of where we were riding was really big undulation. There was there wasn't many stretches of flat. It was mostly big undulations and, and almost every time we would go over a hill, you would be on the front and you would gap the bunch by 10, 20 meters sometimes because your pressure on the pedals is consistent. And our natural reaction is when we get to the top of a hill is to stop pedaling and yeah. to recover. Ease up. And you would just constantly get – and it would look like you were trying to get away from the bunch, but you're just holding the same pressure on the pedals and you're just getting away and everyone has to pedal again quickly to catch up. And that is the difference between keeping pressure on the pedals and not. The funny part about that was I was getting asked, why do I keep accelerating over the top of hills? Mm. And I just had to turn it completely back around to the other person. Why are you decelerating? I'm actually holding the same power I was 50 metres ago – at the top of the hill, the crest, 
and on the down slope, I, I don't stop pedaling. So, so if we're holding 200 watts as an example up the hill, I'm holding it at the crest and I'm holding it down the hill 200 watts. So it looks like I'm accelerating. I'm not. I'm holding the same cruise control example in the car and the people in the bunch think they've crested the hill, the work's done, time to ease up. And that's just natural that we do that. But that's what I'm trying to teach people to get this little winning edge, especially in a time trial. People think I'll ride hard on the, on the hill, which is fine because you need to ride over your threshold because on the downhill it's harder to push the power that you're trying to hold. But you need to keep and carry that pressure on the pedals over the crest of the hill and accelerate on the downhill. So when your bike speed catches up to where you're happy for it to be where it is, if it's above 60 k's an hour, then it's okay to not pedal at all and get into as aero a position as possible. But until that is achieved, you need to keep the pressure on the pedals. And if you haven't practiced that in training, and that's exactly one of the things you're talking about at the start of the, of the podcast was these are the one percenters, the winning edge things that if you practice in training, they will be second nature in race day and it'll do people's heads in seeing you. And we've done some many climbs where we've gone from a reasonably steep section of road to a flat section U-turn, you know, and uh, Alpe d'Huez is, is something that is, is on Zwift where people get to see this. And in real life, this is exactly what happens. It's got 21 switchbacks and uh, there's many mountains in Europe that have lots of switchbacks. And the switchbacks are obviously less gradient. The trick is to keep the pressure that you've been applied, say you're on a 10% gradient, then you get to the switchback and it's four and a half. Keep the same pressure and you watch yourself accelerate away from a bunch. Mm. And it does their heads in. They, they are going, you are accelerating around these corners. And I'm not. I'm just holding the same pressure. And it will gradually make them accelerate higher to catch back up to you. So instead of them riding 200 watts the whole way up, which is what we're trying to achieve to conserve and stay within the range, they might be riding 200, then 150, then 190, then 220 to catch back up. So there's a a match burnt. Mm. Next corner, a match burnt. 21 switchbacks, 21 matches burnt. Mm. And think just think about the training advantage you get from practicing this in training and how it applies to a race and... How am I, I would just watch you and think you are getting so much more of a fitness advantage than me because you're riding longer on the front. There's more pressure on the pedals. I'm freewheeling more. You're riding over the top of the crest. Over a one training ride, you're getting a bigger fitness advantage than me and it feels unfair almost because you're going, you're getting a better edge and think about that for every single session. What's that, what, the, what that's doing? Yeah, and I, I really encourage people who think that it's clever in training to sit in and they've achieved their goal of distance and time. So the goal was three hours and they've done that in a bunch. But if we compared both athletes, the guy who sat on the front in the wind and the guy who sat in the bunch, they both they both achieved the goal of, of the three-hour endurance ride. But look at their power differences. One person might have had an, a, an intensity factor of 0.8, and the other one might have had an intensity factor of 0.6. You know, it looks like they've done the same program, but they haven't. You mm. know, one sat in and took mm. the soft option and not got the training effect out of what we're trying to achieve, and the person on the front who's totally motivated, he's concentrating on cadence, he's concentrating on making sure his power is in the right range, he's on the front dictating the pace he wants to ride and of course we can't have everybody on the front. (laughs) But, you know, that's great if the group's trying to fight. I want to get on the front, I love that. Mm. It means more people are actually not freewheeling in the the middle. (laughs) And it means they're concentrating on getting a really good outcome. Yeah, definitely. And so we've spoken mostly about the bike so far, this podcast, and 
it is really specific. You spoke about course selection before, especially on the bike. You don't want to be picking a course that you're constantly getting stopped at because you won't achieve that pressure on the pedals goal. That's not always achievable on a bunch ride, but ideally stop picking courses that you're going to get stopped on, keep the pressure on the pedals. But what about the run and swim? I mean, the course selection is just as important for them in terms of thinking about this winning edge and this competitive advantage. Yeah, well, the swim's reasonably obvious. If you just spend all of your time in the pool, you are constantly like riding a bike with traffic lights. And of course, we're doing intervals in a pool and it's meant to have stopping and recovering. So we need to make sure that we are outside in an open water, swimming consistently in the open water, practicing the cold, practicing sighting, practicing constant uh, um, arm action, uh, resistance underwater, because that's a big factor in a race where because you've been doing it in a pool, you're doing 10 100s or 5 200s or 4 500s, you're getting a stop. That doesn't happen in a race. Mm. You don't have it in a swim race. There's no treading water. If you do, the swimmers are right swimming away from you. Mm. So, so you need to have that feeling of my arms are getting sore from 25 minutes of continuously swimming. Mm. And if I'm in an Ironman, it's you know 50 if you're good an hour 20 if you're not so good mm. of consistently if you haven't done that in training it's foreign and it's an awful feeling come race day and the swell as well yeah, yeah the swell. swell and you know some people get seasick and you need to know that before yeah. you know um your uncle paul gets seasick a lot mm. um and and it's really you know only till he went into some swell ocean that he found that out and you can take you know seasick tablets to 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 make you feel less nauseous in the water. So there's lots of things you need to learn uh, about uh, the one percenters. You know, don't get in a pair of goggles that you've never tried in the, in the ocean and you can't see anything come mm. race day. You need to have invested in a pair of goggles that work. Mm. And running course selection is just as key as well. Running course selection is really, as most cyclists agree, the, you know, picking the course for the particular session you're doing, if you're trying to do strength efforts on a flat bit of road, that is a lot harder than finding it on a hill. The hill creates a resistance, then your cadence can drop down, and all you're worried about is making sure you're pedaling 360s. Um, so, so the same with the run. If you know, if we're trying to do some hill repeats and there's nowhere to run a hill repeat, um, you know, you need to go and drive somewhere to find a venue that's going to enable you to fulfil the requirements of that session. And we talk about the the goal of if you're a runner one of the key sessions is your long aerobic endurance run and ideally you would wish every single runner could go do it in the hills and get as much elevation as possible because of the gains and fitness you can get without having to run hard yep so again athlete a athlete b athlete a does the the two hour run or the one and a half hour run or the one hour run whatever stage of your program you're up to that's your endurance run the idea is to build time on your feet running that's what endurance running is so come race day you're totally adjusted to it the second gain is to get strength so the best way to get strength in your legs and the skeletal system is to run against the resistance and that's what heels will do so runner a lives in the flat runner b lives in the flat who has the winning edge? No one, because they're both running on similar courses. If they both did a one-hour endurance run and runner A did it on the flat and runner B drove half an hour and found a set of hills where he climbed 500 vertical metres and runner A climbed 50 vertical metres, keep doing that for six weeks and runner B 
will be 10 to 15% better runner after six weeks. Mm. There's no hesitation in, in the data that I've got from seeing people who refuse to accept that that a little bit of pain with a drive is worth the gain to be a better runner. And when it's put like that, you'd say, why wouldn't I drive? Mm. You know, there's a session that I do back to on the bike where there is a course where I like to do the bike session where I'm doing sub-threshold. I live in the Dandenong ranges and there is no section of road that's flat for more than 100 metres. So I can't do that session here. So I drive 45 minutes to the venue, do the session for an hour and a half to two hours and drive 45 minutes back. That's the commitment I have. That's the winning edge. That's the difference. Making sure that the course venue suits what you're trying to get the outcome of. And as a runner, there is a hill somewhere where you live. It might be half an hour's drive. It might be 15 minutes. It might be an hour. You know, we're not expecting you to do that every session. But for the one particular session, especially the endurance run, there's no doubt in my mind the success I had as a triathlete was because I moved and I moved to the Dandenong Ranges to to train. There's no other reason I moved here and I've stayed here ever since. But running at Sherbrooke Forest, which is renowned marathon runner's mecca, that improved my marathon running in the triathlon extraordinarily. It was such a game changer. And, you know, I was regularly running five to 800 metres of vertical mm. over an hour, hour and a half, two hours, you know, sometimes twice a week, but but minimum once a week. And the the back end of my marathon running in, in triathlon in the Ironman was the game changer. Most people were crawling to a walk. I was running the same pace that I started the marathon at. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. And that is why on a Sunday morning at 8, 9 a.m., you will see the top professional runners in Melbourne, all at the Daniel Rangers, you'll see them big groups of 30, 40, um, all the professional runners who are training for the Olympics out in the Dandenongs because they know yep. it's the best thing. So really, triathletes should be doing the same. Exactly. And a lot of the other athletes who've joined those, because it used to be three or four people mm. just doing that and everybody else was running in their social groups around town and it doesn't matter what suburb uh, or state or city you live in, this was what was happening. Mm. But the serious runners had found the right course venue and they were using that to their advantage. And now because social media, people might find out that you're running here, oh, I might join you for that. They're not knowing the reason. Mm. They're doing it because it's fun because we're in a group. Mm. But they're actually getting the benefit of the course. Mm. So don't underestimate how valuable, even though you have achieved the time of the session, it's the other little one percenters in that session that are going to make you better than the person who's doing it on an easier course. And the most ex- outstanding example for me is obviously growing up here, I know how hilly it is. And if I do a long run around here, it's the same thing. It's 500 to 600 metres of elevation. And if I go do it in Melbourne and find the biggest hill in Melbourne, which is, you know, the Tan Anderson Street Hill is renowned as the tough hill in Melbourne to go run. And, you know, lots of runners go there to get some hill endurance. And it's almost laughable because I could run up that four times and my elevation would be 130 metres, 150 metres for the run. It's just... It's not even comparable. No, to no, and and that's what we're talking about. It is okay to be doing that, mm. but we're we're talking about the winning edge here, um, and and so you you might be listening to this and saying, well, that's you know that's a bit extreme, but I, I, I'm not talking to the person who wants to just stay the same. I'm talking to the person who wants to improve and will do anything except for cheat to to get that winning edge. Yeah, and and these are the things that are at your disposal. 
but you have to choose whether you want to embrace them or not. Yeah. So a couple just to finish off with quickly, um, the warm-up and cool-down, you know, the, the training advantages of warm-up and cool-down, but most importantly, the race day advantage of warming up, which you, you think most triathletes actually don't get right. Yeah, well, um, th- no matter what sport you're in, uh, cycling or triathlon um, or swimming races, if you just jump in to the race without having done any period of blood flow, I would like to call it, where you've got to be breathing a little bit and you've got the blood flowing. If you're just standing on the beach, if you're a triathlete if you and, if, and a swimmer, and if you're just standing in the car park with your bike, leaning against your bike as a rider, and then start the race, if someone takes off at a pace that you're not ready for, you're going to be left behind. In a, in a cycle race, that's a disaster. Because as we know, riding in the bunch is so much easier, 30% easier than riding solo. So you need to be ready for whatever happens in that first section. In a swimming race, it is exactly the same. You can swim in a pack and get the draft. In a running race, it is so much easier to actually run with a group because if you're sitting in the middle of a bunch, even with wind, you still get an advantage as compared to running solo. So you want to be ready for whatever is going to be exposed, exposing you in the first five minutes of that event. But all the evidence I've found from all of my training, and the classic example is I might have done a three or four hour endurance ride, and at the end of my particular session, I, I do one, and I've done this many times, I've done a PB at the four hour mark or the three hour 30 mark of my ride on a, there's a particular hill called Perrins Creek Road, which is an 8% gradient for about 10 minutes. Three repeats of that, strength efforts, 60 RPM, in the seat, not allowed to stand up. And, you know, I've tried to do 80%, 90%, then best effort. And after three hours of riding, three and a half hours of riding, and two other efforts on that hill, I can do a PB. Why is that? Well, it's totally because my body is so warmed up and ready for the exercise Mm. that the key session that I'm about to do, not only was it for that because I did strength efforts the previous two, and that is a great example of how warm-up enables, and let's face it, we don't want to do a three-hour warm-up before an event, but it just shows you how when you're really in the groove, um, how you can still perform at your best no matter what you've done preceding, Um, as long as you've done something that's going to actually get you ready for that big effort. And there's obviously in training the aerobic fitness gains you get from doing a proper warm-up and not just doing the main set, which might be 30 to 40 minutes with a five-minute warm-up and cool down. That's right. And and definitely one of those winning edge things is, uh, as we've all seen, um, most of the professional teams and everybody in the world who's a cyclist or a triathlete will copy what the best people do. And it used to be, you know... You remember the classic example, which is extreme, is the cricketers would be um, sitting in the change room smoking and having having a drink before they went out to play. And then after the game, again, crack a beer and, and have a smoke. And that was that was the norm. That's what everybody did. And then one or two athletes decided to go practice beforehand. And then they might have been a little bit successful. So all of a sudden people start practicing a bit more. And the same as a cyclist, people decided, oh, the warm-up actually helped me on that day. And um, tomorrow I've got another stage. I might actually, rather than just stop and get off and sit around, I might just roll my legs over and it's a cool-down and I felt better the next day. And all of a sudden, all the pro teams are all 
warming up and cooling down on ergos after a five-hour mountain stage as if you want to keep riding anymore. Mm. But the reason was because it helped get rid of the lactate that was in your body and prepared you better for the next day. And so, you know, we're doing it for the, for the reasons we might not know, but doing copying people, you know, it doesn't matter whether you, the reason is there or not, you're still getting the right outcome. Mm. And that's the reason why they're doing it, so that they can perform better. And they're those winning edge little little things that uh, that are pretty common now, but people laughed at mm. uh, in the beginning. Well, what are they doing that for? Haven't they ridden enough? Didn't they ride hard enough? And here they are warming down. Mm. And now you're frowned upon if you don't mm. warm down. Yep. That's a good way to finish, I think. I mean, like we said at the start, there are hundreds of things we could talk about. I reckon we did cover probably one of your biggest kept secrets. So it's a big, it's a big uh, valuable present gift for the listeners of this podcast. This um, this pressure on the pedals is something that I think you would say has given you a competitive advantage over a lot of other um, cyclists or triathletes because you've practiced it. Yep, and it's it's not something that is for every session. There are certain times in your training program where you need to practice pressure on the pedals and you need to practice high cadence, low cadence. So you use it at the at the appropriate time. But definitely as a time trialist, you need to be thinking about that in your most important event, the race. And if you haven't done that in training, you can't think about that in the race because you're actually going to engage muscles you haven't used before. So, so the, I, you know, we've said a lot about it today already, but that is a game changer for me is understanding during the race what I should be thinking about. Um, and that is a winning edge topic in itself. Mm. What are the things I should be concentrating on? And I'm using a time trial as an example because the Criterion Race is a lot of other things you need to cr- concentrate on. Road race is the same. But as a time trialist and even as an open water swimmer and as a triathlete, you've got three events you need to concentrate on different things. But as a bike rider where it's just you and your bike and you're trying to get from A to B as faster than, faster than anybody else, what are the things that are going to help me get faster to the, get to the end faster than anybody else? Well, certainly if I can keep the pressure on the pedals evenly at the highest possible power, then I'm going to ride the way I want to. Obviously, aerodynamically position myself, um, have good equipment, um, have the right nutrition. But definitely the pedaling, if I can keep thinking about that from start, so the race is 30 minutes, from the first minute to the 30th minute, what's my cadence? Am I pulling up? And I do that, I think, every 30 seconds. What's my power? What's my heart rate? What's my cadence? They're things that I think about and people come after the race and say to me, I just drifted off today. I, you know, all of a sudden the race was over. I, I, I was concentrating early and then by the time I got halfway through, I got tired and I stopped concentrating and that is a fatigue factor is one of the things that stops you from thinking about that. I've had uh, people tell me that they count one, two, three, four, five and then recount again, one, two, and they're concentrating that way. And that, you know, whatever makes you think more about what you're trying to do is is a winning edge compared to someone who's drifting. Mm. Good way to finish. I think um, there are so many other factors we didn't touch on, like sleep, nutrition, recovery, massage, things we've all experimented with, experimented with you know, losing weight, diet. Strength and conditioning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Altitude. Sleeping at altitude, training at altitude. There's yep. there's a number of things um, which we will go into detail in other episodes, uh, but I think that's enough for today. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next episode.